Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is John Baker, a voracious learner with otherworldly discipline and a sixth sense for opportunity. John holds a utility patent for a product he designed to optimize his life and, as it turns out, many others as well. He is constantly asking how products and processes can be better and taking creative steps to improve what he encounters. Today, we will talk about how he compares and contrasts his experience so far in a startup versus acquisition entrepreneurship. I'll now let John introduce himself in his own words. Yeah, my name is John Baker. I am a self-funded searcher and entrepreneur. I would say my background in short is a little bit in analytics, business development and business strategy, as well as sales. And as I said, entrepreneurship, I currently own a consumer product and am pursuing an acquisition. So pursuing a a search fund, but self-funded. Nice. In addition to that, you have a patent. Could you tell me about the patent application process? Yeah, the application process is one, it's quite a process. It took, what was it, three years to get approved. So in terms of the patent application process, I have a utility patent. So a utility patent is for the rights to own the utility of a particular thing. So for me, I have a product called the Cleansy Sponge. So it's a reusable bottle sponge. So that patent is for the utility of being able to use a weighted object to clean inside a a bottle with a lid or any sort of container with a lid. You can also have a design patent, which is to protect the actual design of the product. And one important piece is when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, it's important to have what's called a provisional patent. And a provisional is just, it holds your place in line, but it still protects your product. But the patent office still needs to review and eventually approve it. And typically, you get a bit of a back and forth from the patent office before you're actually issued a patent. Okay. Thank you for that. Hopefully, that was helpful. Yes. One thing that interests me about entrepreneurship is spotting a problem that exists and not waiting for someone else to solve it, just diving in and coming up with a solution. Could you talk a little bit about? that approach to creating Cleansy? Yeah, I think a lot of it stemmed from my creative mind and me just at a young age trying to figure out how I could gain more autonomy, especially as someone who feels like they had a bit of a lack of resources as And luckily, the internet was around and it exposed me to more. And luckily, I'm a millennial and I was exposed to a lot of different new technologies. Things like YouTube, blogs, articles were more accessible. And I began to understand that there was a different lifestyle out there. There was a better life for me and my family. And I think I took that on at a young age. And it really motivated me to figure out a way to gain autonomy, to also gain financial freedom, which one of the primary ways to do that is through entrepreneurship. And I would always be generating idea after idea in my mind. And I quickly learned that execution is the tough part. The ideas can come 
over time and plenty of people have ideas, but execution is the tough part. So over time, I've developed different ideas at a moving company in high school. I developed an idea for a professional networking company in college, and that gave me a little bit of trial and error. And then I started this Cleansy sponge product because when I get back from the gym, my bottle would have a lot of gunk inside of it. So a lot of leftover protein and also my Tupperware would have leftovers in it. And it would be hard to squeeze my hand into the the bottle opening. Yeah. And also it was just kind of a pain to to scrub with a sponge. So I, I figured why not make it sort of a hands-free process and make this a little easier and, and a little more fun. And as I sort of iterated with that idea, I, I ran it past a few people. They thought it was interesting. And then I thought, why not bring a marketable product to an arena that is sort of considered unappealing or unsexy, which is the sponge category or bottle brush category. So the idea here was, why not bring a product that's useful, effective, fun, and marketable to this category? And then as that developed, I began thinking about a product that was accretive to an existing product line and didn't cannibalize a product line. And and this was great because it can be given as a gift. It can be given as a gag gift. It can be given as a real practical gift. It can be given at Christmas for a birthday. Typically, you don't give someone a sponge or a bottle brush for their birthday or, for, you know, as a gift. <laughs> but now, now this allows for retailers to be able to do that. And there were a lot of partnership opportunities. And so far, it's been great. I sell it on my website and on Etsy. And yeah, it's it's been a great project. When I saw it, this is honest. I, <laughs> I thought this is brilliant. How does this not exist? Like, how have I not seen this before? Do you have any ideas? Did you think that yourself? Yeah, I did a bunch of Google searches and and looked for things that were similar to it. And I found a product that was, it was interesting. It was somewhat of a similar concept, but it was for, it was almost for plastic bottles and it was very, very novel. So I read up on all of those reviews to see what customers were saying about that. And that sort of led a lot of my direction as to how I was going to develop this product to make it effective and well-structured for customers. Okay. You have a patent. You have an interesting product. You could form your own startup. I mean, in some ways you already have, but now you're looking at getting more involved. You are more involved in entrepreneurship through acquisition and starting your own self-funded search. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. What led to your decision-making to take that path? I think one of the primary reasons I... Well, one, the main thing that led to that decision-making was when I read the Walker Dibble's Buy Then Build. Okay. I would say that I was searching for an entrepreneurial path that was really a good fit for who I was and then also fit my current circumstances. Uh And what I mean by that is with startups, especially with a single consumer product company, it's, it's tough if you don't have the resources, the capital, the partnerships, a lot of other things with a single product company. And I had to learn that kind of the hard way, but in a good way. 
I had to learn that the hard way. And my current job at the time was very demanding of my time. And it was a 100% commission job. So I, I needed to prioritize that. I, you know, I didn't have any sort of trust fund or any big investments lying around that were coming my way. So I, I thought the consumer product was interesting. I thought there were some ideas of licensing and partnering with companies that have maybe more resources than I have. But I understood that this wasn't going to be something that I was going to take on as a startup and devote all of my energy into. So I was really seeking that next thing that I was going to devote all of my energy into. And there were two important pieces. One was autonomy. The second was the financial freedom side of things. And I had already had experience really in operations and strategy of an SMB at my current company. So that gave me a lot of confidence because I, I was 100% commission. My sales cycles were very long. They were anywhere between four months to five years. Whoa. So it required a lot of long-term thinking. Hmm. And after reading about entrepreneurship through acquisition with Buy Then Build, I just really got into it and read a, a bunch of other books. I've probably read 12 to 14, maybe different books on entrepreneurship through acquisition. And it just seemed to be the perfect mesh between what I was and what I was looking for and all of my creativity and layering that on top of an existing infrastructure. And it, it makes so much sense to me. There were just a few different knowledge gaps that I needed to fill. And, and now those have been semi-filled. You don't know what you don't know, but that's part of the process. Being an avid reader, are there any books in addition to Buy Then Build that you think people are curious about the search fund or entrepreneurship through acquisition landscape might want to start with? Yeah, I think I would recommend the Harvard book on how to buy a business. I recommend financial intelligence for anyone that doesn't have a background in private equity or investment banking. It really helps you understand accounting. So the P&L, balance sheet, cash flow statements. I'd also recommend the search funds and entrepreneurial acquisitions. That's a very practical book that helps you better understand the structure. That's the Simon, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I like that yeah. one. Yeah, that one's really good. Let's see. What else? I would say the other one is measure what matters, right. which goes over objectives and key results. So a lot of that is kind of long-term planning which okay. I thought was, was very practical and useful. Nice. Thank you for that. You had mentioned long-term thinking. How does that translate to acquisition entrepreneurship? Yeah, I would say a lot of it is from a long-term thinking standpoint, I would say you really need to, one, you have to balance knowledge, accumulating knowledge and execution. Just like a lot of other endeavors, you can read, 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 and read and never execute. So yeah. with entrepreneurship acquisition, I feel like you need to fill your knowledge gaps for sure. But you need to have a plan for once I get comfortable with this particular topic or these particular topics, I'm going to start executing on the next steps. So I think one, you do need to read to fill knowledge gaps. And then two, I think it's really important to really organize and then have a strategy. So I think 
taking the time to learn project management softwares and automations to help with management of complex goals, which is entrepreneurship through acquisition, especially if you're self-funded where you need to be very resourceful. I think in making something very visually comprehensible provides you with a little more control of things. Ultimately, you won't be able to control the outcome, but this will provide you with much more control. And then on the strategy side of things, I think it's really important to think about your end goal. So figuring out what type of lifestyle you want, figuring out what type of business you want to acquire, both personally and professionally. And then you can take the time to think about the process that's required to accomplish that goal. So it allows you to create a step-by-step plan of attack. Okay. I understand from what you said, both are important, reading and doing. I think sometimes by doing, it also exposes that you don't know what you don't know situations because all of a sudden you're forced with having to to solve a problem you didn't anticipate and then seeking out knowledge based on that domain. Have you found that to be true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've had experience with trial by fire in my previous role at HG Real Estate. I was 100% commission. It was primarily outbound sales. And then our sales cycles, like I said, were anywhere between five months to five years. Mm -hmm. So it was a sink or swim environment. So it it forced you to think long term. So I had to do everything in my power to increase the odds of success. And yeah, some kind of ways that I did that were through one, reading about organization, reading about different strategies from various successful People, I think one of the books that was really influential for me was Ray Dalio's Principles. Okay. It goes over a five step process that I think is just critical for anyone who's trying to better understand how to manage some of their goals and manage the execution and ultimately the accomplishment of those goals. And the five step process, it goes over, it's generally the goal the problem, the diagnosis, the design, and then the doing, like you mentioned. And it's a really good iterative process. And there's more to it. And anyone can look it up to get more details on what each of those steps requires. Okay. Thank you for that. There are a couple of things I want to ask you. I'll let you take your pick because I think they're, they're both relevant to what you just said. One is channeling your energy, particularly in times of imposter syndrome. And the other is overcoming analysis paralysis when facing two problems or more. Do you have a preference on where we begin? Yeah, I'd say we can start with the channeling of the energy. Okay. I love that. And, you know, I'm human like everyone else. And I think this isn't discussed enough. I I love just finding different things that help Calm me, especially amongst stress. And when you're in the midst of entrepreneurship through acquisition, it can be very stressful because there's a lot of unknowns. And naturally, humans don't feel good in ambiguous situations where they don't have control. So I think things that have really helped for me, the first one would be morning exercise and any sort of physical struggle that may sound a little strange, but The physical, actually, it's mental training ground. And when you can do that in the morning, it can prepare you for the day. It sort of sets the stage for the day for you. 
And when you go through any sort of physical stress or put your body through physical stress, your mind, it's again, training ground for your mind. So you get to train your mind to really open up and say, although this was hard, I still accomplished it. So it it gives you confidence to start the day. And then there's a lot of biologically proven benefits to working out in the morning. So I, I think that's been probably the number one most beneficial piece for channeling my energy in the right way. You do that before eating on an empty stomach just out of curiosity? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. And I'd say one of the other pieces is networking and finding others that are not only where you are, but can understand kind of what you're going through, but also others that are in higher positions than you that are where you want to be. So I think one of the things that's been helpful for me is I've had really good mentors in my life that are CEOs of larger companies, CEOs of smaller companies, and they've been very generous with their time and helpful. And you need to make sure you come to them with sort of a a plan of attack. And you you don't need to know everything, but they want to know that you're really trying and not just seeking answers from them. And their time is super valuable, I'm sure. So you have to be sensitive of making sure that you're making the most use for both of your sakes. Yeah, exactly. And lastly, I'd say YouTube has been incredibly helpful too, as as much as you can get lost and all of the clickbait on YouTube. It's really helpful. It's it's almost like a, a free mentor. So you can look up different people that you admire and you can hear what they have to say about different pieces. And it's incredibly helpful when you're you're struggling. I use David Goggins in the morning to to get me going. That guy's incredible. <laughs> Something interesting came to mind when you mentioned clickbait on YouTube. I was thinking about trust. And if I click on something and I f- wind up falling for clickbait, I think, and I'm just throwing this off the cuff, so I haven't really thought, maybe I'll walk this back. But I think that I end up not trusting that person or that channel if the content doesn't align with what I expected. I was wondering, two-part question, is it similar to you And do you think it's worth people to try using clickbait given that? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I I think the internet does a good job weaving out. Actually, there's so much out there, but they do a good job of weeding out the views because you typically won't get if you just have clickbait and nonsense Mm -hmm. content. Yeah. Yeah. I think eventually your viewership, your subscribers will diminish. And over time, I think the internet can catch that and people get called out too on YouTube. And I think you can look people up. You can kind of look up their backgrounds. And I think most of the real prominent people, they're not necessarily interested in in having clickbait type ads where the content isn't there. So it's like competition is... yeah. Nature sorting itself out. Exactly. That's how I feel about it. Take in data. Be honest with yourself. If you're losing followers, maybe assess your approach. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'd like to pivot then to analysis paralysis. You've got a startup. You've got a successful career. You're looking into acquisition entrepreneurship in a new state, which we I don't think mentioned, different region. How do you deal 
with being paralyzed by choice? Does that happen to you? And if so, what strategies oh, do you yeah. implement? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's probably three primary things that have helped me address it. And one, I would say, is organization. And then two is visualization, which I don't think is talked about enough. And then three, I would say, is strategy. So for the first one, so for organization, it's really important to not just have a to-do list because to-do lists are actually pretty static is what I've realized. And okay. it's okay to have a to-do list here and there, but they're pretty static. When you're trying to accomplish a big goal, there's dynamic pieces like entrepreneurship through acquisition. You may need to speak with a lender and then there may be follow-up actions after that. And then there may be things you don't know that are related to that. So that's kind of a dynamic to-do that you need to accomplish. So I, as I mentioned, I think project management softwares are really helpful in helping you grasp those dynamic to-dos. Okay. And really, and this is where visualization, I think, comes into play because it's important just having a software and having automation that you don't really understand or that's complicated is frustrating and it's not helpful. So I think it's really important to sort of map out how your brain best comprehends information. And the good news is technology can really help you craft that. And when you craft that and do it through a project management software, it allows you to really step out and get a bird's eye view of what's going on and then zoom in when you need to zoom in. So it allows for the larger end goal to be there and then you can back into things all the way from quarterly to monthly to weekly to daily. And then you can sort of set up a queue where you just are executing rather than having that fill up your brain space. Right. And then I'd say the third, from a strategy standpoint, like I mentioned, it's really important to figure out what is your objective that you're trying to accomplish and really take the time to think about that. And then take the time to think about all of the tasks that are required within that and write that down. And I think you need to be in a good headspace to do that sort of thoughtful work because I think people think they can sort of do it in that late afternoon after work. And that's just not the best time because I think it's very important to strategize and, and think deeply about what you want to accomplish as well as what's needed to accomplish that. And then you can transition to just execution. You can transition to executing and then spend your time on the real strategic thinking rather than having your brain filled with all sorts of nonsense. Because every day we have so much coming at us with AI, news, the internet in general. Yeah. So that would be my advice. Yeah, sound advice. Uh, I'll take notes. In your previous role, you worked with the sale leaseback model. You told me a bit about that. And for me, it was the first time hearing that. I thought it was pretty interesting. I was curious if you could uh, talk a little bit about how you discovered that, how it's useful for people, and if you were planning to do anything like that in the future. Yeah, yeah. So my previous role was in healthcare real estate. So the company I worked at was a boutique brokerage. Really, it's, you know, the healthcare industry in general, I hate just sort of dwindling it down to being a brokerage because it was a lot more than that. It was a lot of 
consultation, a lot of financial underwriting. So I, I think it was a lot more than that. Yeah. So what we did was we helped physician partnerships that owned and occupied their own property. We helped them divest in the property. And the way that you do that is through a sale leaseback. So it's a restructuring of the lease. And the way that we can restructure the lease is because they're owner occupants. So it's kind of money going from one hand to the other. So they have control of that lease. And what we can do is come in and understand what their plans are long term, the partnerships plans. And yeah. then we can structure the lease accordingly because we understood what the the buyer's goals were too at the same time. So the way that it works is after we restructure that lease, we can now go to the buyer, which is typically a private equity firm or a real estate investment trust, sometimes a family office that's focused in healthcare. Okay. And we go to them and say, hey, we have this asset. It's structured this way and that way. And we've already talked to the physician partnership and they've given the thumbs up on the lease structure and they execute what's called a sale leaseback. So the private equity firm or the the buyer would buy the real estate asset from the partnership and the partnership would lease it back as tenants. Okay. So a lot of people say, you know, why would you do that? I got that plenty of times. And the funny part is I thought the same thing. Why would anyone lease back their real estate? And I think there's a few different reasons and a few ways that are very lucrative to the people that are leasing it back. I think one is an exit strategy for your real estate asset. A lot of the physician partners built the property 20, 30 years ago, and they now have a pretty considerable return on investment. So it can be very lucrative for just wiping your hands of that particular investment, depending on what other things you're, you're looking to do. Okay. And then two, I'd say it allows for access to capital from an asset that holds a lot of value. So it allows you to expand your practice or it allows you to invest in new equipment. It allows you or some of the partners to take some of your chips off the table. And then third, I'd say it allows for lucrative partnerships. So with private equity or any of the, the buyers that are acquiring these types of assets, they have a lot of the capital to assist with expansion. So it allows for a, a partnership where the partners don't have to put up their own capital if their practice is growing. They can focus on the the business, the practice, and being a doctor rather than coming up with capital and dealing right. with the development of future expansion. Yeah, that's interesting. Coming back to entrepreneurship then, I was wondering if you could have two pieces of advice. One for people pursuing the startup path and one for people pursuing the ETA or acquisition entrepreneurship path. What would you say to each of these camps? Yeah, I would say a piece of advice for the startup path, at least, is just two pieces of advice are make sure you have a prototype. You can kind of what they call the MVP, the minimum viable product, right. make sure you can get to that minimum viable product as quickly as possible and as cost effectively as possible. Because the thing with startups are you're trying to create your own market. 
And that's very, very difficult. And you can spend a lot of money focusing on creating a product that no one wants. And I think it's human nature to feel like, oh, people would love this. This is awesome. But it becomes a different story when people are using their hard-earned money to buy your product or your idea. So it's right. really important to to test that out as early and as cost-effectively as possible. And then I would say to make sure that whatever your idea is or whatever your product is, make sure it's it's disruptive enough and proprietary enough to disrupt what's currently existing. And then from a proprietary standpoint, make sure existing businesses can't just copy your idea and, and run with it because they already have an infrastructure of customers. And then for the, the advice for entrepreneurs from a search fund standpoint, one, I'm a self-funded searcher that's sort of just launching my journey. So I'm sure there's plenty that I, I have to learn still. But I would say it's a great model. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's really important to fill your knowledge gaps to at least have a, a general understanding of the search fund process, a general understanding of operations. And then I'd say one thing that luckily I have is experience in outbound sales. So I've gone through the emotional roller coasters of dealing with denial cold calling owners and getting all sorts of responses that humans aren't used to, I think, dealing with. So I would say surround yourself with people that have that experience or that are currently experiencing that with you, because it can really help lift you up and you'll eventually realize that no and why are you calling are, are not as big of a deal as it may feel in your body. So. I would suggest surrounding yourself with people and then learning some strategies from people who do have experience in outbound sales. And then really make sure you're organized in your plan so you can set up a plan and, and really attack it from an executional standpoint and continue to network. I think in both scenarios, networking is really important. There's a lot of people that have, have come before you and have been very successful and would love to give back, you know, and the last thing is no one has all of the answers for you. You are an individual and your experiences bring a unique set to the table. So as much as there's success before you, the way that you accomplish it will likely be different. So embrace that. Embrace the fact that you may not know, but you may still need to move forward. Great advice. If people want to get in touch with you, where would you like to direct them? And what should they check out of yours? Yeah, I would say the best way to get in touch with me is probably via email. So they can email me at john at redoaktrust.com. I'm Great. also on Twitter. I'm not too active at the moment, but I plan to become more active. Okay. And that Twitter handle is Truth. John, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit of your wisdom. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Next week's guest is Lisa Forrest, head of sponsor search fund lending group at Live Oak Bank, the number one SBA lender in the United States. 
Lisa is a veteran in the business lending space and a respected sage, particularly in SBA lending for self-funded searchers looking to buy and operate a small to medium-sized business. Tune in to learn about significant changes to SBA loan requirements and their implications on the SMB landscape moving forward. Until then, eyes on the horizon. 